If you're not a Christian or you're re-engaging with Christianity, John called himself loved of Christ. And there's a little story we're going to get to in a couple of weeks where it says that John was at a meal and he rested his head like a good friend would on the very heart of Christ. Terry's going to read for us the last section in the book of John where Jesus is speaking publicly. It's going to be loud. It's going to be noisy. It's going to be chaotic. In fact, trying to preach this today, I just would say right now, put your seatbelt on because Jesus Christ, this is his last public stand, but put your seatbelt on realizing that the storyteller, John, listened to the very heartbeat of God. This is a story that he saw, he heard with his own eyes. As Terry reads, it's a long reading. We're going to have you sit down. It's a rest day. But so you don't fall asleep and so you stay engaged. Listen to how often John, the loved one of God who heard the heartbeat of Christ, how often he brings up the term to see, to see. Let's, let's listen to the word of God. Good morning. This is uh, John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So came these to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has been has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he, he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come to the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say, and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that before John takes us into the upper room and everything becomes quiet, that Jesus said all of these things. Lord, we've all had very busy weeks. Many of us are scatterbrained just to start. We need your Holy Spirit to help us to enter into this section, this part of the story. Lord, would you soften our hearts? Lord, would you help us to see Jesus? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, with your Bibles open, I want want to start with a question. What if you've been looking at the world upside down your whole life? What if? I heard a story this week that made me think about seeing things wrong. The French artist Gauguin created this work of art. It was a village under the snow. But if you can look up here, It was sent to an auction, and the auctioneer had it turned upside down and thought he saw Niagara Falls. So he labeled this Niagara Falls, but the artist designed it as this beautiful village under the snow. 
Everyone heard and saw the label Niagara Falls, but it was upside down. Now, someone bought it and turned it right side up, but this goes down in history that often how we hear, that's Niagara Falls, can shape how you see. And how we see shapes how we interpret, and this is very important, how we interpret shapes how you live. Your interpretation is your life. What if you've been looking at Jesus upside down your whole life? Here's how I often do it. I just look at Jesus as a solution. I love solutions. And by the way, solutions are not bad, but I love a quick fix. I want a quick answer. I don't like it when things are unresolved. I'll give you an example. Think about a keyboard. I don't play music on the keyboard, but I know this. If I were listening to something and I heard this, if you didn't play that next note, I'd get a little irritated at you because I want resolution. In fact, if you heard just the six notes and or the seven notes and not the resolution, you'd probably supply it in your own mind. We do not like a world that is not resolved. Yet, even though, of course, Jesus solves problems, of course, he's the solution, he also confuses us. He also sometimes turned our world upside down. In fact, it's probably better to see Jesus and the coming of his kingdom as a revolution. A revolution is a complete 360-degree shift in the order of your world, in the power structures, in all of your values. A revolution overturns the current way of life with a new set of beliefs, a new set of behaviors, and a new set of how you belong. And here's my burden as one of your pastors. We need to stop seeing Jesus as a self-serving solution to that next little thing in our life where it's da na 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 I gotta have that or my life won't feel like I'm really living. Our souls, my soul salivates at quick self-serving solutions. I tranquilize myself with triviality. We were not made for this. So many of us are in the little kiddie pool waiting around, but our hearts are made with deep desires for beauty, goodness, truth, for seeing Jesus for who he really is. Our souls were shaped for Christ's reign and his revolution. So the title today of this section of John is Solution Sure, but it's solution and revolution. This week I was running because I'm trying to get ready for a marathon. And when I was running, I usually take a path, but I saw another runner go off into the woods on a path I've never taken. Initially, I was a little nervous. Where will that path take me? But I followed him, and it was a beautiful path. Would you follow me as we follow John into this path? Because we're going to see Jesus as the solution and revolution as the king of five things. The king of peace, the king of access, the king of seeds. What does that mean? He's the king of the hour, and he's the king of life. So let's jump in. Let's take the path, would you? Jesus is the solution and revolution as the king of peace. 
Let's set the stage of this section of the book of John. Passover's going on. If you don't know much about that feast, over a million Jews would swirl into the city and swell it because they were going to celebrate the famous Passover. Remember that day in Jewish history when after 10, there were nine plagues and the, the Israelites were slaves and they couldn't go free, but if they would put the blood of an animal, of a, of a lamb over the doorpost of their home, they themselves would be able to be set free. The firstborn would not die. If you could have been in Jerusalem that day, it would have been carnival-like. It was noisy. It was crazy. Do you feel it? Do you hear it? And there's two crowds that John mentions that crash together. Crowd number one, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him, Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. See, just recently, there was a crowd of people that saw Jesus take a dead man and make him become alive again. And they were witnesses. That's a key word in John's story. A witness means they really love to share and spread what they saw as a solution. All of you are witnesses. You have things that solve things for you, and you tell people about it. The second crowd, though, was a large crowd. Verse 12. They heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and verse 18 tells us something special. The reason why the crowd went to meet him is that they heard he had done the sign. See, people are just like us. They heard about the action. They heard about all this excitement. I don't know about you, but when Fast X, the 10th Fast and Furious movie came out, once again, it tempted me to see it. I've not seen any of these, but if you get to know my personality, I've been wanting to watch all of them. Now, what I found interesting about this last Vin Diesel movie, yes, it was fast again. There were cars, there were special effects, but people said for one of the first time, there was no story in this movie. It was action for the sake of action. And this crowd, wow, there's a dead guy that became alive. Let's go sightsee. This is spectacular. Let's get hyped up. They were seeking a sensation once again. They were trying to tranquilize themselves with the trivia all around them. How we hear shapes how we see, and these crowds are running, and they're thinking, if this guy can actually do something with a dead guy, this guy might be our king who can conquer and go to war for us and solve our problem with Rome. So what do they do in verse 13? They take branches of palm trees, that's weird, and they go out to meet Jesus, but let me show you a coin that the Jews minted because they didn't like the Romans. This is an actual coin. And what did they do? They took a Roman coin and they put palm branches because that was the Jewish sign of independence. We are independent. See, the palm tree is all over the Jewish area. And they were saying to Rome, we are independent. That's our solution. What did they cry out in verse 13? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. What does Hosanna mean? Interesting. It's a solution word. It means save us now. Resolve what we're going through. We want a solution. Come on, save our house, our food, our jobs, our reputation, our life. This could be the king that saves us from those evil people out there. Come on, Jesus, provide for us good people 
the good solutions that we need. When? Now. I don't want to wait for this. How? Do it, Jesus, with violent strength. But here comes the revolution. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, take a look at a donkey and a horse, a little different, a little different, especially a young little donkey. Why would a king in that culture ride a donkey instead of a horse? What was the difference between a horse and a donkey for them? The horse was a symbol. If you came into town as a king, that you had won the war. Solution, victory. I have won the war. But the donkey was very different. Read about it in the book of Judges because leaders would often go into cities on a donkey. Why? The donkey was a symbol of peace, not war. A king would ride into a city on a donkey if he was bringing peace. And Jesus is saying, listen, y'all want solutions. But verse 47 says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. I have peaceful intentions. Some of you may not be Christians, or you know people that do not want to become Christians. They do not see Jesus as desirable. Often it's because they think Christ's main message when he arrived was judgment. They think things like this. Well, he just came to send many people to hell, and I'm sure my name is just the next on his list. But it says here in the book of John, he came to save. Do you see this, Jesus? And he didn't just come to save, he came to serve and save. Because something about a donkey that you need to know is that it's a service animal. The donkey's main purpose is a beast of burden. It existed to serve, to carry the burdens of another. A donkey carried people's burdens. And he says, fear not. I know you want solutions, but you're gonna have a revolution in your mind. Fear not. I'm coming with a fixed purpose and I'm not gonna bring war. I'm bringing peace. And John will whisper. He does this a lot in the book of John in verse 16. His disciples didn't even understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that means when he died on the cross, they remembered. Glory. We've talked about this before. It's kind of a tired religious word, but my goodness, take it out. The word glory is alive. It sparkles. Glory is the heavy substance of God's significance. When you see glory, if you will see it right side up, it will change everything. Glory is what's notable about God's capacity to save and bring peace. Jesus is saying, I can save you from the fear underneath all your fears. The fear of eternal separation from God will be gone. So Jesus is the solution But more than that, he's the revolution because he's the king of peace. But secondly, he's the solution and revolution as the king of access. What does that mean? Look at verse 20. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, at that time, most of the world spoke Greek. So if you weren't a Jew, you were a Greek. Greeks were outsiders, The Jews were insiders. And in verse 21, it says, 
These came to Philip and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They wanted access to see Jesus. Little side note, did you know that many pastors put on their pulpit this very verse, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You want to know why they do that? Because pastors have a tendency to give motivational speeches, TED Talks, soapboxes. The reason that we come here each week and we preach the gospel is so that you see Jesus. And these were Greeks. These were outsiders. And let's go back in the story. Do you all remember in the beginning of John, Jesus shows up to the temple during Passover and the Greeks, which were supposed to be in a portion, the edge of the temple, couldn't even pray. And when Jesus showed up, it was very revolutionary. When those Greeks didn't have a seat at the table at that temple, he overturned some tables. Jesus is a revolutionary in this. He will bring access to the outsider to get the inside good news. He made a whip. You can go back and read it. And I wonder if these Greeks remembering, wow, now we can come and we can worship again because something's very different about this king. And we want to see him. We want to see him. See, what we see, what we focus on always expands. I wonder, if you, do, do you have any desire this week to be like these outsiders, that you want to see more of Jesus Christ? Phil tells Andrew, they both tell Jesus. See, Jesus initially comes to the Jews, the insiders, but it says that his own people didn't want him to solve their deepest need, access to God. They didn't receive him. Oh, they wanted his solutions. They wanted his kingdom, but they didn't want the king. Boy, isn't that our world today? Who doesn't want all the values and good things of Christianity? But do they want Jesus? They wanted to use Jesus, the Jews, to get a kingdom, but they didn't want to follow him as king. And because of this, Jesus is being said by the Greeks, I want to see you. I want to see you. You know, the Jews' role, if you read the Bible, is they were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be telling the nations, come and meet the living God. The Pharisees in verse 19, they're looking on, and they're these religious um, people that had added a lot of laws, and they're like, oh, look, the world's gone after him. They're not happy that the outsiders are getting access. And when they tell Jesus, Philip and Andrew, that Outsiders want to see him. It triggers Jesus to talk about, of all things, time. Now, we'll develop that in just a minute, but in verse 23, it says, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When those outsiders said, I got to see Jesus, it set in motion the next gear of history. Jesus was going to be revealed. The revolution had come. It had arrived. Outsiders would become insiders. All would have access to God through Christ. And he surprises his hearers with, of all things, a metaphor. A metaphor? A metaphor is a coiled up compression of truth. Jesus is going to take something like a seed that everybody knows, and he's going to relate it to the revolution of his kingdom. He will issue his manifesto by means of a metaphor. Let's look at it. Number three, of course Jesus is our solution, but he's, a revolution. he's bringing a revolution as the king of seeds. Seeds. 
He's gonna say truly twice so that we lean in and listen up. How we hear affects how we see. How we see affects how we interpret life. Your interpretation is your life. Are we gonna listen to the truth from Christ? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. All right, metaphors are weird. They will cause initial confusion, and that's why he's doing this. He wants to cause confusion to get you to get out of those ruts, those thinking ruts, those Niagara Fall pictures that you've seen your whole life. He's saying, I want you to re-see me. He doesn't keep you in your confusion. He will bring resolution, but he wants you to see now with your imagination. Take a look at this image of wheat. Most of us here are not farmers, but a wheat grain is pretty small. And he's saying this, a little grain must fall, not onto the earth to just brush it. It's got to go in. It's got to fall and enter into the darkness. It's got to die. But then he says, if it dies, it's going to bear much fruit. I wonder how you see the Christian life, the kingdom. I know when we think of stories, we typically think of the classic comedy and tragedy masks. Do you see the shape of life in the kingdom as a comedy or a tragedy? What do I mean? A tragedy, like the famous Romeo and Julio, it starts where it's like, wow, these two are falling in love. And again, it goes up. But then guess what? By the end of Romeo and Juliet, it's not a great ending. They're dead. A tragedy looks kind of like a frown, but a comedy, which is the shape of the kingdom, goes down like a seed falling into the earth, but then it goes up. There's a smile. Do you see the shape of the kingdom as down, then up? A seed will die, but all of a sudden, life will shoot up from the ground, and that shoot will, at, in a matter of time, produce fruit. Down, always, always down before up. This last week, Tim Keller, who's been a pastor that some of you know, had his memorial service. And people remembered a lot of things. It made me remember the day that Tim Keller said, I had a worst moment in my life. It's always interesting when you think of people that you don't know well. If you know their worst moment, it tells you a lot about them. Let me share his worst moment. This is a picture you'll see of Magnolia Beach in Massachusetts. And this story connects to the idea of down must proceed up. He tells this story. He says, once I let my son go. You see, when David, my three-year-old, was on my shoulders at the rocks at Magnolia Beach in Massachusetts, there were these big boulders. David was on my shoulder, and I tripped a little bit, and I dropped my three-year-old son. It was the worst moment in my life. He was okay, but boy, it was the worst moment in my life. I dropped him. But all my son fell into were rocks. And Tim Keller asks, what does it mean when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, the father dropped his son, and his son falls into nothing. Jesus falls into whatever we deserve for our sins. He falls into complete separation from God. Jesus fell into spiritual disintegration. But remember, it's down 
Jesus became a man. Jesus died on the cross like a seed going into the dark. He died. He was in a tomb for three days. But then it's up. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you all know where the oldest producing vine is in America? I was so proud that it's in the Carolinas. Nags, near Nags Head, North Carolina, is the mother vine. Many of you have never heard of it. The mother vine. Did you know that somebody dropped a little teeny seed into the ground in 1584? And that vine is now two feet thick. It covers an acre of land, and it has been producing fruit for 400 years. But something had to happen before the mother vine became productive, before the excessive overabundance. Before productivity, we must fall into the dark dirt and die. But when we live, we will have purpose and proliferation with life. Look at verse 25. Jesus does not want to mince words. Whoever loves his life is going to lose it. All your quick solutions, all your fixes, all your results... You want to love that, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life, that means in comparison to the eternal life of Christ, in this world, you're going to keep it for eternal life. So we are to live and die and live again like a seed. One thing about a revolution for many of us here is a seed is slow. Daryl and I, when we were planting the church, we said, what's distinctive about us? And we said, let's plant seeds rather than gimmicks. You see, Daryl and I could get a crowd. We could totally get a crowd. Jesus does not gather crowds. He gathers disciples, slow learners. And if you get to know me, I'm a slow learner. Maybe what you need in your life is a revolution of pace. See, a grapevine seed is going to take three to seven years before you even get a grape. Three to seven years before you even get a grape. But if you get that grape, 400 years later, you could be drinking some wine. And Jesus gives us a secret because it's hard to give things up. He's saying, I've died for you and you're loved. See, loved people can love people. It'll cost you everything. And loved people, people that have to sacrifice, are not to live anymore as consumers, but as conduits of God's love. We're not a bunch of buckets. We're pipes bringing God's love. So he says here in verse 26, in short, served people. If I'm serving you, you need to serve people. 26, if anyone serves me, he's got to follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be. Following is hard. Some of you love being productive. You love Jesus, but when it comes to your will, this is where you need a revolution. I was running with Sam a couple of weeks ago. We were doing 14 miles, and the last two miles, he's picking up the pace, and I'm just like mad at him because I'm not going very fast, and he's like, Dad, just stay behind me. Just follow me follow you. And he's like, and he's, he's running. I'm just, and I wasn't so mad because my body was tired and it was tired. I was mad because my will had to keep pace with him. 
Jesus looks at us and he's very straightforward. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. This is not a request. This is not a suggestion. It is not an invitation. Where is Jesus asking you to follow him? I don't know what that is for you. But the will needs a revolution. Okay, number four. Jesus, of course, is the solution to so many things, but he's going to be a revolution as the king of the hour. This is a cool phrase that comes up in the book of John. In chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus is like, Mom, you want me to go ahead and make all this wine, but my hour has not yet come. You remember that story? Then in chapter 7, verse 30, it says, His hour had not yet come. You know, in basketball and in most sports, the clock determines the plays, Right? Oh my goodness, there's only two minutes left. The shot clock's got this. The clock determines the place. Something's going on in the story of Jesus Christ. And in verse 27, he says this. Now, okay, something's going to happen. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. When it says that Jesus Christ, the clock is ticking. Something's going to happen in history. It says that he was troubled. You need to see this image. This was a word that was used in their culture when you fell out of the saddle of a horse. Now, I don't know how many of you have fallen off of a horse, but it's not a great feeling. He is saying something is now going to happen in history, and it's troubling me, Father. But should I just say, save me from this trouble? See, the saga of his soul was at a breaking point. Would he go through with the death on the cross for sinners, or would he get a quick fix? He resolves the tension very quickly. He says, for this purpose, I've come to this hour, this hour. Do you see the purpose of Jesus? He dies, we live. Purpose matters. Purpose matters. John is someone who golfs. Imagine you never golfed before, and you golf with him, and you get a hole in one. And you're like, wow. But all you ever knew was football. So you put on your scorecard, okay, that's six points for me. John would probably look at you and say, no, 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 no. The purpose of golf is different than the purpose. You're using the wrong scorecard. Jesus reveals his purpose. For this purpose, I've come to this hour. So what is it, Jesus? Verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, all the nations. And John's going to whisper to us the interpretation in verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death, death on the cross, lifted up, he was going to die. The hour is his self-giving death on the cross for sinners. If we misunderstood his cause, his purpose, his cross, we will miss his glory. To the cross was not just to relieve our guilt. It was to reveal his glory. God is so holy that, he had to die, that Jesus had to die Jesus is so loving. The Father is so loving that Jesus was willing to die. And there's an effect of this hour. Do you see it in verse 31? Now, the ruler of the world's cast out. This is a big deal. A revolution makes no sense unless the old order, the old authority is moved out. Now, the ruler of the world, Satan himself, the accuser of you because he says you're a sinner, Jesus says, oh no, I am taking the death penalty. Accusations will no longer stick. 
for those of you that deserve death. The hour had come. The final stage of his suffering was put into gear. And lastly, Jesus just says, even though John has said over and over that he's light in life, light in life, it's like the finale at the end of the fireworks. Jesus is like, I cannot have you miss this. And he starts talking about light in life, light in life. So let's look at it. Jesus is the solution and revolution as the king of light and life. Verse 34, the crowd answers him, who is the son of man? They're finally going, who are you? I want to see who you are. In verse 45, Jesus says, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. When you're looking at me, you're looking at God. Isaiah, you can go back to chapter 6 sees God on the throne. And John actually says in verse 41, Isaiah saw his glory. That was Jesus. It's very mysterious. But Isaiah saw a silhouette of the sun 900 years before Jesus would arrive. Jesus is light. The revolution is lit by the revelation of God, the arrival of God in Christ. He is light. Look at verse 36. Jesus' last words to the crowds before he goes to the upper room with just the 12. He says to the crowds, as he says to us today, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Dostoevsky, one of my favorite things that he ever said was this. We've never truly breathed air nor seen light until we have breathed in the God-inspired Bible and see the world in the Bible's light. In verse 50, Jesus says, and I know his commandment is eternal life. This is the commandment. God in Christ is summoning you to come alive. So the big question is we turn the corner and we end. And by the way, thank you for getting on this path. It's been quite a ride, quite a a run. Are we going to join Jesus' upside-down community? Are we going to join his adventure importing heaven's life on earth? Now, it will be upside-down. How do the people respond? There were two responses to this revolutionary gospel. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. Can you believe that? It's how hard our hearts are when we just want solutions. Some people walked away thinking that he was Niagara Falls rather than a village blanketed by snow. But verse 42 gives us some hope. It says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. So they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. We long to belong. And it says in verse 43, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They believed the picture, but they wanted to cover it up. And that's a problem for a lot of us. We don't want to live that contrast because it could cost us. Will we follow Christ? They feared the future where they just wouldn't be liked. Often our fear of the future eats our present. That's not what Christ came to do. He wanted us to run into the future. If you believe in in this message of eternal life, you can start living the right side up. It will feel like you're walking upside down on your hands. All the price tags of life will be rearranged by Christ. But in verse 24, John reminds us, truly, truly, the words of Jesus, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He didn't come into judgment, 
He's passed from death to life. I want to end with this picture again of the village and of Niagara Falls. I end with a very short story. This summer I went to a Christian camp, and I knew that a young lady and her husband had what we would call deconverted. They walked away from Jesus. And I said, I'd love to just hear your story. I sat with them, and these are their, these are their words, because they decided to look at Christianity as Niagara Falls, not as a beautiful village presented by Christ. And they were, they were very forthright about it. Here's what they told me. They said, Howard, we were brought up with behaviors to do that would solve our problems, but we didn't like the behaviors, and we'd rather behave like we want to solve our problems. I said, thanks for the honesty. They said, secondly, we were given rules to live by and a lot of extra rules, and the rules did not solve our problems, and we didn't like the rules. But then the young lady leaned forward and she said, can I tell you one thing though, Howard? We were raised, we were told we have to believe in Jesus. And maybe it's our fault or maybe it's the fault of the communities that we were in, but nobody ever showed us Jesus. And the husband leaned forward and he said, I don't even know who Jesus is. I had to memorize verses. I can sing hymns. I don't even know who Jesus is. And I thought to myself, how many of our friends and neighbors are looking at Christianity like Niagara Falls, but they've never seen Jesus. We had a wonderful talk after we were open about that, and we just, I just started to share with them some stories of Jesus that I found fascinating, and the conversation was wonderful. Do you see Jesus as a solution, or are you willing to accept him as the king? Because he has brought a revolution and the world is now upside down or it just might be right side up. Would you pray? Father, I'm so thankful that this story gives us hope that there are outsiders that are still saying, I want to see Jesus. If they looked at us right now, would they see us in lockstep behind Jesus with our values, with the way we behave, with the way we speak, with the way we sacrifice? Would they see us going slow? Would they see us dying? Oh, Father, we do want people to see Jesus. We know that this was why we were made to reflect his glory. Lord, I pray for my friends. I pray that maybe a little seed was planted over the summer and they would re-engage a Christian community in California and they would see Jesus. Help us, Lord, to walk out of here today importing the revolution of your kingdom one life at a time as we serve your son. In his name we pray, amen.